Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Snow's History Hit. Now, as you'll know, I am doing History Hit Live on YouTube on the Timeline channel on YouTube three times a week during this lockdown, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, 4pm UK time, 8am Pacific and 11am Eastern time. So uh, head over to Timeline and watch those. We've had Susanna Lipscomb on, we've had Dan Jones, we've got Mary Beard coming up. We've got all sorts of wonderful people. And the first one that went out is one that's proved very, very popular. There's people watching it with Professor Mark Bailey. He's a professor at the University of East Anglia and he is a specialist in, you guessed it, the Black Death. We decided we'd start with the Black Death. It's what people seem to be talking about and making dodgy historical comparisons to. So we thought we'd go straight to the man himself and find out about the scale of the Black Death, which initially swept through Europe from Western Asia in the middle of the 14th century, but also its impact on communities, its aftermath, economic, social and cultural and political changes that followed in its wake and try and stimulate some thought about how the current crisis might change the world that we live in. So enjoy this. If you want to watch this one or any of them, they're all available on the Timeline YouTube channel. Go and, uh, go and check them out, as is me talking about my favourite historical movies. That was a Easter Bank Holiday Monday special, so go and check that one out. And disagree with them if you will, like everyone seems to have done. If you want to watch even more historical documentaries, if you want to listen to all these back episodes of the podcast, go to History Hit. It's the uh, new digital history channel. It's like Netflix, just for history. Lots of people going up there now. Use the code POD1, P-O-D-1, and you'll get a month for free, and then one month for just one pound, euro, or dollar. In the meantime, everybody, enjoy Professor Mark Bailey. In this episode, I'm going to be focusing, perhaps appropriately, on the Black Death, a pandemic that swept across Eurasia in the 14th century and caused uh, enormous casualties and saw huge change in its aftermath as well. Um, I'm, going to, I'm very, very lucky. I'm joined by Professor Mark Bailey. He's just delivered the very prestigious uh, Ford Lectures, Oxford University. He's got a book out on this at the moment. He is exactly the right man to talk to. Mark, thank you very much for coming on this special experimental live podcast YouTube episode. It's a pleasure, Dan. People will have heard of the Black Death. Can you just give me the outline? When and where did it emerge and how fast did it spread? The Black Death occurred in the middle of the, of the 14th century. And we know from eyewitness reports who, who must have seen people dying in the late 1340s, that the symptoms were buboes, pussy buboes appearing in the lymph nodes, 
and blackness under the skin, which is effectively necrosis. Tissues are dying. And we also know from various sources about 30% of the European population, perhaps 50% of the English population died. Um, it's spread very, very quickly um, and spread throughout the year as, as well. So it didn't seem to stop according to, to the seasons. Did it emerge in the east and, and spread it did. We, we, we have a sense that it probably emerged from a reservoir of pathogens, which we think was, was white pestis, which, which is plague, um, somewhere around Mongolia, Tibet, western China, and it spread in the 1330s and gradually came westwards uh, throughout Europe. I guess, unlike today, when there's air, plane travel, huge globalised communities, was it a little bit slower? And what were there accounts of it as it was sort of progressing across the landmass? Historians have been poring over documents from different parts of Eurasia uh, for the last 10 or 20 years and have been able to reconstruct how it spread. It's probably reached the Middle East sometime in, in 1346. And then in 1347, it simply explodes across the Mediterranean littoral, which means that it's, it's probably been carried in, in boats probably Italian, Venetian, Genoan galleys. It gets as far as the Balearic Islands by the end of 1347. So in that year, it is spreading hundreds of kilometres. And the interesting thing is that modern plague doesn't move very much during the winter, um, and it spreads uh, much more slowly. So there's, there's a significant difference between the speed, the seasonality, even the mortality of the medieval Black Death and modern plague. And that difference has, has, has caused historians a good degree of confusion in the recent past. Yeah, worth remembering, of course, the plague still exists in certain places on the planet now. It hasn't entirely been stamped out like something like smallpox. Um, talk to me, did, did, I know this was a time also of climate change. Do you think that had any impact on, on the, the transmission of the plague? One of the big questions for historians is, is why did the worst pandemic in recorded history suddenly explode across the known world? And in the past sort of 20 years, they've got a much better sense that there's a number of factors, um, chance events working in tandem to create this extraordinary catastrophe. One of the things is there's a high levels of population across uh, Asia and, and Europe, high levels of malnutrition, and poverty. Significant amount of trade is going on at this period between the Far East and, and Europe. Um, so there is transmission through travellers and merchants uh, moving across the continents. But most importantly, and perhaps intriguingly of, of all, something very, very strange is happening to the climate in the early 14th century. There's a sudden increase of storminess, um, significant variations from year to year in temperature, in precipitation, very rainy one year, very dry the next, very hot, very cold. And most remarkable of all, the Black Death moving across the known world between 1347 and about 1351 coincides with the coldest snap of the last millennium. It's extraordinarily cold, and scientists have even discovered that the Justinian plague of the 530s was also 
coincidental upon a serious reduction in, in, in the temperature of the world climate. So as well as the plague, there would have been things like crop failure as well. I mean, this just sounds like a terrible time to be alive. In 1349, um, plague hit England, the Black Death hit England, and the harvest failed. The harvest failed in 1350. It failed in 1351. Wait for it. It failed in 1352. It is the sole example in the second millennium of four back-to-back catastrophic crop failures. And at the same time, we know that, for instance, the price of fuel and the price of salt rockets. And what that is indicative of is extreme cold and a lack of solar radiance. I understand the scholarship has kind of moved around on the importance of rats and whether or not they were to blame. Yeah, yes, and um, the, the high mortality rates in the middle of the 14th century, up, up to 50% of the population dying, um, the speed with which it travels and the time of the year, throughout the year, um, means that the Black Death, which we traditionally assume is plague, but it's not behaving like modern plague. And so that created some confusion amongst historians and scientists who wondered whether in fact it was some other disease. Um, and that debate was actually resolved about 10 years ago with advances in DNA technology, which was able to identify, would you believe, from the dental pulp of plague victims from seven uh, plague pits throughout Europe, they were able to identify that the offending pathogen in the Black Death was indeed Wycinia pestis. It was plague, but it's plague behaving in a very different way to modern plague. So it's a different strain. And there's a sense, given the speed of the spread, that rather than being just a disease of rats, which it, it tends to be in the 20th century, it was more broadly a disease of, of rodents, of mammals. It transmits to humans, and it's perfectly possible that either human fleas, um, human lice, or even droplet infection between humans is the main mode of transmission of this particular disease. Because what we do know, and we have reconstructed, is that it's traveling down the main arterial routeways of medieval Europe. It's humans, not rats, it's humans that are transmitting this disease. Was there anywhere in Europe that managed to avoid entirely the arrival of the plague? In England, we've got some wonderful sources that show um, how this plague is spreading and, and deaths. And for 30 years, I've been trying to find a single place that was missed in 1348-49. And I found one single place. So in England, hardly anywhere missed. There is a sense that parts of, um, of, of Bohemia, bits of Germany and Poland might have missed in the main epidemic at the end of the 1340s, early 1350s. But the thing about this disease is that it kept coming back. It came back in 1361, 62. It came back at the end of the 1360s. And those places that missed it first time around certainly didn't miss second or third time around. Did it affect all ages equally? And how about so social classes? So, you know, the, the, did the rich suffer as much as the poor? Well, we once thought that this killed indiscriminately, and certainly contemporaries felt that this was a, a very different disease. 
that afflicted humanity equally. But from different sets of sources, we know that the death rates amongst the nobility were lower. Perhaps about a quarter of them died. And that's really because they must have known that it was coming and they had multiple residences and were therefore much more able to be mobile during the passage of the epidemic locally and able to, to, to move and to isolate themselves um, better. We also know from analysis of skeletons in, in plague pits that it killed the elderly disproportionately and younger people seem to have survived better. Whether they caught it um, and recovered or didn't catch it, we simply cannot know. But we know that the over 50s died disproportionately high. But here's the irony, 1361-62, the second great plague epidemic, which is probably the second worst health catastrophe of the last millennium, but pales into significance compared to the, the first outbreak, is often described by contemporaries as the plague of children, that it seems as though they then died disproportionately high during the second epidemic. This idea that it keeps coming back, and it's, it's not a single challenge that society has to face. I mean, how many waves of this were? This disease, and it is the same disease, of that we're certain, um, returns on another five occasions uh, throughout Europe in the 14th century alone. In England in the 15th century, it recurs on another dozen occasions. And the final outbreak in England is, of course, the famous outbreak of um, 1665. Uh, but it, it, it's in France until the early 18th century. Of course, it becomes less virulent, it becomes less complete in its geographical spread. It kills fewer people on each of those subsequent visitations, but it's here. This is a golden age of pathogens that lasts for about three centuries. And one of the great unanswered questions is, why does it disappear? And, and we don't quite know why, because it's, it's, a, it's a complex interaction of both human response um, humans can take steps to reduce its spread, and they learn to do that. There's no doubt that some people must have caught it, built up immunity, and perhaps then were handing on a genetic immunity to subsequent generations. Plus, it, it's all to do also with the density of rodents, the density of the vectors, the fleas, and so on. But also, epidemiologically, there is a tendency for pathogens to become avirulent over time. If they're too successful, they kill the hosts, and there's no host left for them to infect. So there's a tendency for mutation towards more avirulent strains um, of a given pathogen. So you put all those together, and it disappears from um, England in the middle of the 17th century. But as you rightly said earlier, it's back. It is present currently on five of the seven continents of the world. Yeah, I mean, it's something that I always associate with being a sort of disease of the 14th century. But I remember, you know, in 1600, when, when Queen Elizabeth was in her, her almost final year of her reign, there was an outbreak in England then. It's extraordinary. Did people's responses tend to change over those centuries? The outbreak in London in 1665, so vividly described by Pepys, was serious and distressing, killed perhaps 5% of, of, of the population. But the great example that all 
British school children know of the, the village of Eam in Derbyshire that effectively quarantined itself um, indicates that societies have learned that um, isolating people, isolating the sick, and stopping movement, stopping things like markets and, and, and trade, stopping people from moving around has uh, a beneficial effect in restricting the spread of this terrible disease. The Old Testament. It is one of the most influential collections of texts ever created. And this month on The Ancients, we are exploring some of the Hebrew Bible's most well-known stories, people, objects, and kingdoms, and the influences that inspired them. From the Mesopotamian origins behind the well-known creation story of Noah's Ark and the Great Flood, to world-shaping prophets like Moses, sacred artifacts like the Ark of the Covenant, and the archaeology of Temple Mount. Stay tuned for new episodes of our Old Testament series out every Thursday this June, on the Ancients from History Hit. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What about other responses in, say, the 14th century? What changes? You can't have 50% mortality in a society without sort of transforming it, presumably. What, what are the things that you historians have noticed happening in the 14th century? I mean, one of the, one of the great challenges is, is actually burying people. And, and when, at a time when you don't have local authorities or substantial government, and at the same time trying to retrain priests, and, and much of that is done by private initiative and by charity. Perhaps the most interesting thing about the outbreak in the late 1340s in England is the involvement in the government in intervening and trying to provide some kind of coordinated response. It's important to remember that governments aren't large in the middle of the 14th century. They don't have a large bureaucracy. They're not particularly well-funded. In fact, there's not really a sense of what the role of a government should be at a time of a national pandemic and crisis. But in England, the government intervenes in order to try and stabilise particularly prices and also tries to um, secure the supply of labour. Because if half the population have died, there's a shortage of, of, of skilled and unskilled workers. So the government in England on the 18th of June, 1349, as the plague is, um, is developing throughout the country, pass um, something called the Ordinance of Labourers to try and fix prices, to stop them inflating, and to try and make labourers work, and to work for a maximum wage, not a minimum wage, a maximum wage for the common good. We don't think of medieval governments being kind of interventionist on that scale, but they really were trying to grapple with this situation. Yes, in some ways they were defining it as they were going along. There was no sense at this stage that central governments should be leading a quarantine response, for, for instance. In Italy, 
city-states and, and city governments started to introduce quarantine measures. And that's the, that's the first real example of that. The word quarantine comes from the Italian word quaranta, uh, meaning 40 days. So the Italian city-states were the first to try and isolate the stick and to stop movement. In England, the intervention was much more about social policy and economic policy. And the government establishes the principle for the first time that governments have a role to intervene at time of crises to ensure social stability and to uh, promote the common good of all people. They did so by trying to, to stop profiteering by making ordinary people work. So their, their sense of what the common good was is very different from today, but they were articulating that as they went along. And the big change in England is that thereafter, the government becomes a standing authority in social policy uh, and indeed sets the template for other governments around the world. Should we dwell a little bit more on just what life must have been like during the peak of those outbreaks? I mean, it would have been something that would have brought everything grinding to a halt. You'd have seen it in every direction, I presume. It's really difficult from the sources to, to get a handle on what it must have liked to have, have, have lived through it. They knew it was coming. And you can sense that in some communities, people are making uh, dispositions in order to protect their wealth and so on and so forth and look after potential relatives. There's also some basic prophylactic, sweet smells, for instance, and attempts to make sure that burials would be looked after. But in particular, they wanted a proper religious ceremony for burials. And indeed, the experience of, of 1348 49 meant that many people set up effectively communal self-help burial clubs called, called religious guilds in order to make sure there was somebody there to bury them during the course of a, of a future epidemic. Um, we know that 40% of all land in England changed hands in 1349. It is the greatest single transfer of wealth in one year because people are dying and heirs are, are then taking over um, the land. But throughout this, the most extraordinary thing is that local courts continued to be held, local religious services continued to be held. You'll get a sense that the markets are suspended, a lot of basic trading is suspended and that people are relying on community self-help to get through this extraordinary year. But the administrative resilience and the way in which administrative structures cope is, is just remarkable. And a really good example of that is, is courts continue to be held. And the only thing that you notice that's different is the handwriting deteriorates. It's almost as if either scribes are rushing or there are less able scribes surviving and less literate scribes as a consequence. But the other thing that is remarkable is that when it comes back in 1361-62, it's serious. But thereafter, these local epidemics, you don't get a sense of any great disruption. You get a sense that communities have learned how to cope with this extraordinary recurrent catastrophe. There are clearly some outbreaks of local looting, um, and there are one or two local issues of, of, of law and order. But for the most part, uh, law and order seems to have held in most places, and communities held. And I think you know, what, what it shows is that within a crisis, there is also a sense of humanity 
which uh, enables communities to, to, to come together and manage whatever is thrown at them. And they adapt. And, and I think that the message, particularly at the moment, is that, is that communities have faced epidemics and pandemics many, many times before. And reactions are very different, but for the most part, they learn to cope and they, they emerge stronger at dealing with that aspect of their lives. Well, Mark, I want to finish off by talking about why the plague was not just a catastrophic and tragic event for millions of families, but also how it really set history off on a, on a different path, how it changed the course of history. Um, what are some of the big changes that you have identified coming off the back of, of that first great bout of plague in the 14th century? Among the main changes is that the way that people lived changed subtly but importantly. There was a sudden and major reduction in wealth inequality. Essentially, wealth went down the social scale because uh, ordinary people could get land and their labour was suddenly in short supply. Um, and some historians argue that the, the, the age of carnivorous Europe starts from the 1350s because the lower orders are now eating meat and dairy produce because they can afford it. Um, there's also a huge jump in ale consumption uh, after, after the Black Death, and we can, we can document this. So uh, public pubs um, are probably, for the lower orders, are a, a consequence of the first great outbreak. And, and what that is, is people drinking ale as a source of, of carbohydrate and safe fluid as opposed to, to, to water. So it's improved living standards. Um, so those are, those are two fairly major changes. Labour shortages draw women into the workplace to a far greater degree. And in parts of Northwest Europe, um, that begins to create a change in family structures. So you get small nucleated families with women delaying the age of marriage or not marrying. It's called the North European marriage pattern. Um, and the significance of that is that it increases the purchasing power of households over the course of the next two or three centuries. Well, why is that significant? Well, apart from the fact that it is, if you like, is, is the beginnings of, of, of girl power, of, of women in the workforce, but it also means that wealth per capita in Northwest Europe, and for another range of other reasons, is higher than other parts of the world. So what happens is that the particular institutional, economic, and social responses to the Black Death in the middle of the 14th century, then going on over the next two to three centuries, results in greater wealth in Northwest Europe. And as a consequence, it's taking the first tentative steps to modernity, to capitalism. It's called the rise of the West, the, the great divergence with the East and a little divergence within Europe, that the, the sort of economic powerhouses shift from Italy and Spain to Northwest Europe. And it is arguable that we simply would not have come to liberal modernity and current standards of, of living and technology had it not been for the Black Death. Mark, uh, thank you so much for joining us on, on, this, on this first live stream. 
I have learned a huge amount about that gigantic global pandemic. And in many ways, I think, I think you've made me feel a little bit better about what we're going through at the moment for lots of reasons. Just to let everyone know, you have, you've, put, you've put, crushed all this expertise into a, a mighty book. Tell us what that's going to be called. The book is called After the Black Death, and it will look at the responses in England in the later 14th century. And it'll be published by Oxford University Press by December. Professor Mark Bailey, thank you very much to you for coming on. Hi everyone, it's me, Dan Snow. Just a quick request. It's so annoying and I hate it when other podcasts do this, but now I'm doing it and I hate myself. Please, please go onto iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts and give us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps, basically boosts up the chart, which is good. And then more people listen, which is nice. So if you could do that, I'd be very grateful. I understand if you don't want to subscribe to my TV channel. I understand if you don't want to buy my calendar, but this is free. Come on, do me a favor. Thanks. Give them a gift they'll never forget because they'll still have it years later. American Giant makes clothes that just keep getting better with age. Like their iconic full zip hoodie that's designed to last for decades because a gift they'll wear for years is a gift that keeps on giving. So be a gift-giving giant this holiday season at American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order when you use code GRATEFULAG23. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com, code GRATEFULAG23. You can't really be proud of yourself if you don't know your history. Those were the words of Nelson Mandela and the foundation of a new podcast from The Times and The Sunday Times, Your History. Join me, Anna Temkin, Deputy Obituaries Editor of The Times, each week as we explore the astonishing lives that have shaped our own lives. Your History, available wherever you find your podcasts. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe as a special gift. You can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code Dan Snow at checkout.